The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello. I'm a host. Hello. Welcome to the third episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Here with me, as always, is my colleague Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hey, Matt. How's it going? It's going awesome. This is an amazing week for policy, for weedsy stuff. <laughs> we had a really weedsy debate, which we will talk about later. But first, you know, I wanted to talk about something that has sort of been going on for a few years now and, and gets a, a little bit lost. But it's back when the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was being debated in Congress. It was such a big law that one of the things that happened is that provisions that on their own sort of would have been a huge deal and big congressional debates and all kinds of op-eds and hot takes written about them could really kind of just get smuggled in and and go along for the ride. And one of them was this law, which you've probably seen the impact of at your local uh, Chipotle, McDonald's, whatever. It says that fast food restaurants, chains with, not fast food restaurants, but chain restaurants with more than 20 branches need to put calorie labels on their menus. Um, And this, you know, it follows on what we've had forever, which is that packaged food items, you know, if you buy a pack of M&Ms, you can look on the back and it'll tell you, you know, how gross and unhealthy this is for you. Yeah, it's a disaster. Um, it's really Very bad. Um, we have in our office an M&M machine, and M&Ms are delicious. Uh, but in the dispenser, you you don't see exactly how much it is killing you. I assume the theory was that if we put these labels on restaurant chain menus, something would happen that would be different. Uh, either people would start ordering healthier things, or restaurants would have incentives to change up what kind of items they offer. Because, of course, you know, if you're cooking food for yourself, you sort of know, well, okay, I could probably make this taste better by throwing a whole stick of butter in. But you also know, you know, that's kind of gross. Uh, but if you come to a <laughs> restaurant, you know, you don't know what's in it, right? So your incentive as a restaurateur is to sort of put everything maximum fat, maximum salt. People are going to think it's delicious. And then you just say, oh, it's a chicken sandwich. And and who knows? So this label idea, you know, it seems kind of reasonable, but there's been really furious lobbying around it. And there's also been some academic research into does this make a difference and does it help at all? I think Sarah knows that actually better than me. I just know that popcorn is involved. Yeah. Oh, man, this is one of my favorite regulatory fights. I, I'm very <laughs> excited to talk about this. I like no, I like knowing that you've like sort of a top 10. It's one of your favorite regulatory this is, fights. Yeah, I think medical loss ratio is probably my favorite. <laughs> but I put I put menu labels a strong second. Um, so maybe we'll get to do MLR talk at some point. Yeah, so the research on calorie labels, from what I can tell looking through it, is it's generally it's pretty mixed. There's some studies in favor, some studies against, but generally negative. More studies than not just don't show an effect. And they show that these labels go in. People do notice them. People like actually see that the labels are there. But in terms of and sometimes people I, I know there's one study out there and I'll find it and put it in the show notes where people see the see the labels and they say, yes, they're going to change how I order. And then you look at how they order and like nothing changed at all. So people like are thinking it's changing, 
probably the most convincing study, I think it's like a really interesting study in favor of these was um, this really giant study about Starbucks, which Starbucks actually started implementing these labels before the ACA requirement. Um, and if you've ever been to Starbucks, you like start to realize like, oh shit, that muffin has like 5,000 <laughs> calories in it. It's very upsetting. And they did find using one of the biggest data sets that's been looked at a 6% decrease in calories ordered. It was all in foods, not in drinks. And it wasn't from substitution. It wasn't people saying, oh, I'll get the 300 calorie muffin instead of the 400 calorie muffin. It was people just skipping food altogether. So the Starbucks study is the best case we have in favor of these. But generally, the evidence is like pretty mixed on these changing behavior. So I think it's intuitive, actually, that on the demand side, you would not see a tremendous change. I mean, mm-hmm. it's worth saying what the problem that w- was trying to be addressed was. Um, my favorite example around menu labeling was at the macaroni grill. They used to have a scallop and spinach salad. And if, like, if I went to the macaroni grill and I was trying to eat well, Ordering the scallop and spinach salad like would have been a good bet, and it was over 1,200 calories. Ooh. And so people just had no way of knowing that kind of thing. It's worth saying that one of the long-term questions about menu labeling is whether it has an effect, whether Macaroni Grill, Denny's, McDonald's, etc., begin to, on the margin, cut down the caloric load of their items because it would look really weird to try to serve people a scallop uh, and, and spinach salad. But that particular example that I gave about the salad, I think, actually speaks to why this probably won't be effective for individual people. The people who are probably going to benefit the most from menu labeling are going to need it the least. So you're dealing with people who, when they come in and they see a bunch of labels, they like make a choice to forego the thing they want and get nothing or get something a lot lighter. And some people will definitely do that and so you will have an effect. Like I am one of those people. Like I will go in and I don't buy the M&Ms because I know what is in them and it freaks me out. But a lot of people who really do struggle with weight or a lot of the people who policymakers are trying to change their behavior are not confused. There was a whole thing in New York a couple of years ago where Mike Bloomberg was trying to like outlaw the giant soda. And the problem with the giant soda was not that nobody knew that it was really bad to drink like a bucket of Coca-Cola. It's that they wanted to drink the bucket of Coca-Cola and they're willing to make that trade-off. And so one thing for folks who feel that way is that many labeling can there is a little bit of evidence on this. I don't think it's great, but I do think it is suggestive that menu labeling can have an adverse impact because people go in and they have five bucks to spend on lunch and they look at what is a maximum number of calories they can buy for that five bucks. So I do think that one of the the potential issues here is that you might end up helping folks who probably didn't need that much help and actually giving folks who are not eating well sort of an ability to actually eat even worse. And by the way, with all that, I still support it. I think it is perfectly good for people to have information and then for them to make decisions on it. I don't think that decision should be overly morally weighted. But I'm not shocked that it doesn't work. I think it's kind of a bunch of sort of fit, health-conscious health policymakers making policy a little bit by introspection and like what what would work for them. But so here's where I would push it. So I've talked to some public health researchers for a story I never ended up writing and I should probably write. At bum, some, bum, bum. Yeah, this is awkward <laughs> now. But the case they made, which I actually found pretty compelling, is that there are some studies like suggesting that, you know, it leads to like a handful fewer calories ordered. It's an inexpensive policy intervention. You know, there's some evidence that it reduces calorie consumption. You know what? Go for it. It's not going to be the thing that solves the obesity crisis, but if it's like the small nudge that like knocks 10 calories off of an order. And I think the evidence, you know, on this ordering more, I actually have not seen 
the re- we have to look and see if that study exists. This is probably bad for the yeah. podcast, but I actually don't think we're arguing. I oh. agree. I think menu labeling oh, is a totally it. is a totally good idea. In part because I don't think people should go to the macaroni grill and go, if they wanted to order the salad so they could keep on their diet, they shouldn't right. be completely tricked over it. It's not an expensive right. kind of mandate. Or they for... should get like the sandwich because like if you're going right. to get 1,200 calories, exactly. get something you right. actually want to eat. But, well, but, yeah, sorry, go so we, we teased this a little bit before, but one thing that makes me feel somewhat more positive about the potential impact for this kind of rule, particularly if it's applied in a robust way over the long term, is the lobbying around it. We have cases of vendors of very unhealthy food who did not respond to this by saying, sure, we'll just write down next to our movie theater snacks how many calories are in the popcorn and nobody's going to care. What they did instead was they hired lobbyists to furiously battle in the HHS bureaucracy to be able to not do this, right? I I think if we assume that people who are in the business of selling snack food know something about their own business, it tells us something that movie theaters and amusement parks and other places like that have been fighting so hard to get themselves exempt from this sort of thing. That particularly because those aren't restaurants, they aren't places that people go to sort of for meals. They're places that people go to for movie viewing or for for rides, right, for entertainment. But a lot of food these days is consumed at non-meal times as just sort of incidental to the ups and downs of life. And it seems like people who are selling food in those circumstances really fear that their sales are going to go down, right? That it's not that people are going to go to the movie theater and make healthy choices at the movie theater snack bar. It's that they're going to say, you know what, I'm here to see the Avengers, so I'm going to just watch the movie. But right. let me let me push on the on the other side of that, actually. I don't know why. Again, I'm pro-menu labeling, but I'm going to be the devil's advocate in this discussion here. I think you're totally right. There is great research. It's actually one of my favorite papers. It's by David Cutler and a couple of co-authors. And it basically shows that if you look at where Americans' increased caloric consumption is coming from, it is coming from between meals. It is not coming from meals. And they have a really good technological argument around this. They, they basically make the point that in 1930 or 1940, it was perfectly possible to make a very heavy casserole. What was very hard to do was to make shelf-stable snack food. If you weren't near your kitchen, it was just hard to have easily accessible food at all times, and that it's refrigeration preservatives that have made things like bags of chips possible. But I think that goes exactly to the point that if you look at where the calories that are really making people heavier are, they are coming from a source that is actually unusually labeled already. They're coming from cans of Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Sprite. They're coming from bags of chips, from candy bars, from things that people buy in between meals. So I think that if menu labeling was going to stop that, I think that that would be somewhere where we just wouldn't be seeing the kind of rises we are. Instead, what we've seen is that the amount of food people consume at meals, which are typically unlabeled, has stayed pretty steady, whereas the amount of food people consume in these much more labeled interstitial periods has gone way up. But see, I think the labels on those snacks are really bad that we've let industry get away with. If you remember old cigarette warning labels where it used to be like a cartoon of a camel and it's like smoking is amazing. (laughs) And then there's this like little text is like, actually, it's going to kill you. And over time, right, as the government built a real political consensus in the United States that we were going to take tough regulatory action, those kind of labels got 
bigger and more sort of crazy and, you know, really telling you something. If you get a bag of Doritos, right, it'll say something crazy like it's 110 calories. You're like, oh, that's not so bad. But it turns out that's 110 calories per serving. And somehow this individual pack of Doritos has three and a half servings. I mean, we know, right? If you just ask someone, well, is it healthy to eat Doritos between meals? They're going to say, no, no, it isn't. But people don't really understand at a moment-to-moment basis the consequences of what they're doing. And that's because the labels that are on there don't convey that in a real kind of way. It's not a coincidence, right, that industry likes to keep those labeling norms really sort of vague and weird and monkey around with the serving size. It's not a coincidence that the movie theaters want to keep the labels off their things, that there is a real concern in the industry, not so much that a single weak rule from HHS is going to change things, but that a sustained, really rigorous effort to keep doing this and make it salient to people would change behavior. Right. Two things. One, John, the kind of snacking point. You actually are seeing a bit of a counter trend to that, where soda consumption is falling Mm -hmm. a lot right now. And I think there's a growing awareness of the calories in soda. Maybe it's Bloomberg's push. Maybe it's something else. Margot Singer-Katz at The Upshot has been doing a great series about how eating is changing. And she just had a great piece recently about how if you look at we're actually seeing the obesity crisis kind of like maybe peak and it's plateauing a little bit. And the reason you're seeing the plateau is actually a drop in soda consumption. So there are some kind of counter trends going on there. On the labels, I think there's some like very fascinating public health research on this about how to construct a better calorie label. And, and there's ways that industry games this. So like, like I think of M&Ms, they often have now they have that label on the front that says like 210 calories and something or other. If you put that on green or red, it'll vastly change whether people mm-hmm. think it's healthy or not healthy. So of course, you know, whoever makes that Mars or whoever makes M&M will like put the 210 calories on like a green background instead of a red background. And then you're more likely to eat M&Ms. There's really great research showing if um, we changed calorie labels to include like how much exercise it would take to walk off or run off something that people understand it better than like this nebulous thing called calories. Right. But we run into this problem with the calorie labels in Obamacare, too, where you know, when you go into Chipotle, it says, you know, Chipotle burrito between 270 and like 12 million calories. <laughs> and like, what work is this thing doing for you? And there, there was a great paper I wrote about about a year ago that was looking at like, what are actually the things underpinning this label? It turns out that 270 or whatever number it is, it is, is literally like a tortilla with beans. Like that is the lower bound. And I would argue, I mean, maybe I would argue that a tortilla with beans does not fit the classical definition of burrito. As a Californian, I would agree with that. Okay. And also, it's actually, if you think about it the right way, which isn't that, oh, this is somewhere between 270 and 80 bajillion. But if you think about it, that just this tortilla (laughs) right, is 190 (laughs) calories, right? If you look at the difference between the burrito and the burrito bowl, it's like gigantic. But I'm just going to push this point a little bit again. I like people to have this information. I think they should be able to make these decisions. But I just think it is not the case that the problem is people are confused about Chipotle burritos being a heavy meal to consume for lunch. I I don't think, I think confusion is the wrong way to put it, though. The question isn't, are people confused if you sit down and just ask them what's going on? The question is the salience in their day-to-day. That's why I think it's interesting we're not seeing a bigger effect. Like, to be totally upfront, like, you can go back in my old writing, I thought we would see more of an effect from menu labeling initially. Before the studies began coming out, I was much more optimistic about menu labeling. I remember there being studies that had some 
some very small effect from menu labeling, basically a bunch of studies that said no real effect. Yeah. I, I seem to remember one that had a small positive effect on caloric consumption, but I'd have to go back and find it. But nevertheless, like that that's why I'm skeptical here, because I think that like if you take these arguments seriously, what you would say is, OK, menu labeling is going to have an effect, but it actually hasn't done that much. And so I think like that should make us update our sort of mental model of like what was going on here. I will say, and I think this goes to your point about the movie theater popcorn, I do think there is an outer edge where you have food retailers who are offering foods that will give people a kind of sticker shock. That the popcorn bucket is so big that when people see the, you know, whatever it is, 4,000 calories or something, that that's actually going to be so far out of the realm for them that they're going to say no. Or And like that popcorn that is one at, where I think it's like popcorn yeah. and salad. There's ones where there's this disconnect where you right. think of the popcorn you make at home. It's like fine. And you I, don't even understand how many I, calories it adds. I just think those edge cases are not going to have a huge aggregate effect on what's going on here. I mean, even the soda stuff, I think, is a really good example. But whatever changed on soda, it was not menu labeling. Like We had labels on soda for a very, very long time. One thing that I became very convinced of, like reporting on a bunch of different sort of healthcare efforts to deal with pretty sick people or people with particular um, maladies or particular behavioral problems, was that it's very easy for us to assume that the issue is just sort of substandard delivery or substandard information when, you know, a lot of the problems when I talk to providers and sort of people who work on public health is people who just really are willing to make that trade off, like whether that is rational or whether or not we approve of it. A lot of people are just sort of comfortable at some margin eating shitty food. And I just think that one reason menu labeling is not working as well as a lot of people thought is that I think that folks sort of introspectively who are not comfortable with that sort of extrapolated out from their own experience. And that's why we're not seeing more. Because like for the people who do order this food, they weren't confused enough for the labels to make a big difference in their in their consumption habits. And I think also to make that difference, this was a really great point. I thought Julia Blues, our medical writer, she wrote a great piece about weight loss. And like at Vox.com, a Vox, wonderful website. Indeed, yes. One should go read this wonderful website, Vox.com. Yes, and like its podcast on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. do that too. To do that. She had a great point about, you know, the, the real people who end up losing weight, like they have to be, it's so much more fun not to lose weight. Like it's so much more fun to eat like delicious food. And you have to have this like very extrinsic goal and motivation you're working for else it's like just not going to work. All the information in the world is not going to create that external motivation. Maybe like getting diagnosed with diabetes or like seeing, you know, someone else struggling with weight loss, like that might be the thing. But the information is not, except like, you know, in these popcorn cases, the thing that's missing. One of the things I think would really work, right? And and this goes into, this is now way beyond menu labeling, but Julie's also done a bunch of work on this. And like back in the day, like I had always wanted to write a behavioral economics diet book. I thought it would be like fantastic and really funny. But I talked to Don Ariely, who is a behavioral economist, has written a bunch of great books on the subject about how do you eat at Thanksgiving as a behavioral economist? And he's like, well... You should come to Thanksgiving wearing a very tight shirt. You should keep the food in the kitchen so you can't just kind of reach over the table and like get yourself another helping of mashed potatoes. You should only have food in the house before that needs to be cooked in order to actually be edible. And I actually think that stuff is really important, right? We were joking about the M&Ms in the office a couple of minutes ago, but the M&Ms in the office are a 
fucking disaster and I hate them. And I would not leave the building. Right, there's no way I would walk to CVS two blocks away to go buy a like pack if of you, M&M's. If you right. suggested that to me in the middle of the day, like if you said, hey, Ezra, do you want to go get some M&M's at CVS? <laughs> I think you were psychotic. But like it's not that much harder, but that little bit of friction really matters. And I think that if we were really serious about this, and I'm not sure we should be because you do get into real issues of autonomy and, and, and liberty here, but I do think that we would want to think about friction, about not just giving people information, but about making things things harder. I went to the the Cleveland Clinic a couple of years ago and they employ a huge number of people, tens of thousands as I remember. And they had actually bent the cost curve on their employee health expenditures. And I remember talking to them about how they did it. And the answer fundamentally was they created a police state. They fired people, they fired multiple doctors for smoking on the premises. They basically said like if you work here like you cannot smoke anywhere in the in the general vicinity. They did not allow anyone to sell sugared sodas. There was actually one McDonald's it was super profitable because they had a long-term lease that the Cleveland Clinic couldn't change. And like they, they were walking me through what they were doing. They were doing testing on people's like lipid profiles. Like you, you looked at what they were doing and it worked and you could completely see how it worked. But it, what it really convinced me of is that if you want to push those kinds of changes in people's health, you just have to go way further than people are comfortable doing. Well, this is like the Bloombergian approach to public health, right? Like you outlaw trans fats, you try and outlaw big sodas, that fails in the courts. The menu labels were pioneered in New York before they were part of the ACA. So this is like very much the Michael Bloomberg school and of thought. Smoking bans. And smoking bans. Smoking bans are, yeah. are they really work, right? It like you actually have to like leave the bar to keep smoking. And there has been no single policy passed in my adult lifetime that has had as much of a direct yeah. improvement on my life as the smoking ban. Because I used to go to the bar with a bunch of friends all the time, and I'm not naming any names, Matt, who <laughs> smoked. And I, it would just be like being inside a lung and like all my clothes would stink. And then the smoking ban came into effect in D.C. And you, you again, you wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. You just have to walk right outside. But a lot of my friends quit simultaneously, including including, I believe, you. Indeed. Yeah. It I really mean, worked. I, I think I think that that raises an interesting issue that there can be a certain flaw in taking a very literal look at specific policy interventions that I think if you look at the move to get people to smoke less, it has ultimately been very successful and it has ultimately required very heavy handed rules, right? It seems like you should be able to say, well, look, if Ezra prefers bars that don't allow smoking, and bars are allowed to ban smoking inside, that like the market should reach an equilibrium where non-smokers have these things and you know everything's good. The actual experience we've had is that you can get people to not smoke through really high taxes, really aggressive regulations, cutting down where you can do it, big kind of social stigmas, things like that. But it does start with lower weight interventions where people start saying, well, maybe we should nudge behavior a little bit. And if you had kind of done the cigarette pack labels and said, oh, this didn't change that much, let's just give up, Mm -hmm. right? You wouldn't have ever sort of achieved that. And in some ways it's like, well, let's try this. Let's try another thing. Let's try another thing. Let's try another thing. And that's ultimately how you get there. And what really makes the difference is do you have a political sort of consensus we want to crack down on this industry and get people to not use its products? Or do you have kind of wishy-washy tinkering around the edges? So, You know, with smoking, we got there, right? At some point in the 90s, it just became a thing where politicians were not going to say, 
I'm going to stand up for smokers' rights. And the dominoes started falling one by one by one. So as you say, one of the big divides in, in American life right now, in American politics right now, is between a sort of more capitalistic outlook on how to change people's behavior and a more socialistic outlook on a sort of more command and control Intriguing. approach. Would you say we saw something about socialism in a political debate recently? You know I would. I would say that. What a smooth transit. We are just nailing these transitions. This transition, anyway. This transition. I'm going to bring that up in the <laughs> self-critique later to remind it, us we did something. It's particularly right. it's pretty smooth when we then stop to pat ourselves on the yes. back. Yes. I, I hope made, we will do it during the future. <laughs> you ruined it. Hey, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying it was weird. Also, You Made It Weird, an excellent podcast by Pete Holmes. Part of why I wanted to begin podcasting in the first place. So there is a free so advertisement for another podcast. Yes. So Bernie and Hillary. So Bernie and Hillary. So there was a Democratic debate recently, and it had a really fascinating exchange sort of right towards the start of it. There was honestly, I thought, one of the most interesting exchanges I've heard in a, a presidential campaign debate in, in years. But why don't we play it and then we'll comment on it. You don't consider yourself a capitalist, though. Do I consider myself part of the casino capitalist process by which so few have so much and so many have so little, by which Wall Street's greed and recklessness wreck this economy? No, I don't. I believe in a society where all people do well, not just a handful of billionaires. Just uh, let me just be clear. Is there any bill, anybody else on the stage who's not a capitalist? Well, let, let, let me just follow up on that, Anderson, because when I think about capitalism, I think about all the small businesses that were started because we have the opportunity and the freedom in our country for people to do that and to make a good living for themselves and their families. And I don't think we should confuse what we have to do every so often in America, which is save capitalism from itself. And I think what Senator Sanders is saying certainly makes sense in the terms of the inequality that we have. But we are not Denmark. I love Denmark. We're the United States of America, and it's our job to rein in the excesses of capitalism so that it doesn't run amok and doesn't cause the kind of inequities that we're seeing in our economic system. But we would be making a grave mistake to turn our backs on what built the greatest middle class in the history Senator of the Sanders? world. I mean, everybody is in agreement that we are a great entrepreneurial nation. We have got to encourage that. Of course, we have to support small and medium-sized businesses. But you can have all of the growth that you want, and it doesn't mean anything if all of the new income and wealth is going to the top 1%. So what we need to do is support small and medium-sized businesses, the backbone of our economy, but we have to make sure that every family in this country gets a fair shake. We're, we're going to have a lot more. So I think that what you hear there is two things, right? There's a superficial level political analysis, which is that Hillary Clinton actually leveling a frontal assault on Sanders socialism suggests the, the seriousness with which he's begun taking his challenge. I think a lot of people would have expected Clinton to not be attacking people who are trailing her in the polls by name for, for quite a bit longer. But I think deeper than that, this is actually a really important and interesting fight in the Democratic Party right now. And, you know, Sanders ends up saying, hey, we agree. We both think small and medium-sized businesses should be supported. But there is a real difference where 
Clinton comes out of this new Democrat tradition, this tradition, you know, in many ways that was brought to dominance in the Democratic Party by, by Bill Clinton, by her husband, was continued with Barack Obama. But it's a post-Reagan tradition. It's a tradition that argues and, and believes that the government has a lot of virtues, but it is very bad. It is very inefficient at the provisioning of, of major services. And the free market is just more efficient. It's what generates growth. It's what generates employment. And the proper role of government is to try to curb the excesses of the free market, but really let businesses take the front line in, in allocating capital, let Wall Street take the front in allocating capital, and businesses take the front in providing services and growing the economy. And then the government can come in, regulate around predatory activity, tax the gains in order to provide a social safety net, and, and so on and so forth. And Sanders comes out of this much older democratic tradition that doesn't go for things like Obamacare or Clinton care, but actually tries to get private insurers out altogether. He's got a plan, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, to move pharmaceutical patents to a, a prize system that where the government would be deciding what different drugs are really worth. He's you know really intent on trying to get money, and particularly big money, corporate money, out of politics. I mean, you go down the list on, on the things he cares about, private prisons. He has a very deep skepticism of bigness on two levels, both in terms of whether it really is that good at providing services. He often feels that the innovations that get touted are really free riding on public research, or they are only for the rich and they don't end up being of much utility to the the poor who are, who are locked out for price reasons. But also that when corporations get very, very big, they end up getting a lot of power. They get too much power to set compensation. So sort of particularly in a deunionized economy, you don't have much ability for workers to extract, I think, what Sanders would see as their fair share. And when they get that kind of money, they begin to develop a really strong voice in the political system. And this is, too, a place where Clinton disagrees. Like, not only is she more comfortable with her role in the economy, but she's much more comfortable with her role in the political system. There's a very important moment in 2008 at the yearly Coast Convention, now called, I think, Netroots Nation, where she was asked why she takes lobbyist money. And she defended lobbyists and defended corporate lobbyists in particular, saying, you know, look, corporations employ people. She basically says they deserve a voice. And this is not, I think, a fight that we would have expected to be seeing in a real way in the Democratic Party eight years ago. I mean, Obama, who's pretty liberal, is very much with Clinton on this. But after the financial crisis, where it felt like instead of providing that growth, sort of untrammeled capitalism created a massive, a massive level of economic dislocation because the gains of growth are being shared very unequally, the party seems much more comfortable with the Sanders-like critique of sort of the fundamental role of the corporation. And then post-Citizens United, there's a much higher level of concern over corporate political power. So this is, I think, a really fascinating fight because even if Sanders does not beat Clinton in the primary, he can really show the potency of this in the Democratic Party, force Clinton to respond to it, push other Democratic politicians in this direction. And so there's this talk of socialism versus capitalism, but I really think it's a fight between different kinds of Democrats, a much older kind of Democrat and, and a much newer kind of Democrat. And I think it's an important one. I, we cannot say for sure how it's going to fall out yet. So I think Sanders is actually just confused and that his discussion of this point shows, I think, some real limits to his thinking, that he is someone who talks a lot and I think quite rightly about the successes of Nordic social democracies in promoting the kind of social outcomes that he favors. But he also has a foot or two feet or all of his feet very firmly planted in this kind of 
tradition of American rural agrarian populism. And he's from Vermont. So he has this talk about, well, you know, we got to support small businesses, but somehow doesn't favor the existence of big companies. But he should look at the countries that he actually admires, right? And what you see is that these Denmark, Sweden, Finland, their countries are on the smaller side, but they have some really big businesses that are headquartered in them. And because the countries are small and the companies are big global companies, they're actually much bigger relative to the local political system than any companies in America are. Norway's biggest company is a, is called AP Mullermersk. And they um <laughs> ah, yes. they do that's um, a confident pronunciation <laughs> of that, by the way. Yeah, and it's probably wrong. <laughs> uh, you have probably seen them though actually around. They um, make uh, shipping lines and and shipping cargo containers, right? It's this huge global enterprise. And their revenue is not as big as Apple's revenue. That's the the biggest company in America. But it's about a quarter of the size of Apple's revenue. And Denmark has 5.6 million people. And America has (laughs) 340 million people, right? So that company is a huge deal. Sweden is home to H&M. It's home to Volvo. It's home to Ericsson. These are big global enterprises. And it's in a country of nine million people. And these companies do have a ton of political clout, right? It's exactly as you might fear. And in some ways, it's much crazier than anything that happens in America. I remember a few years ago when Nokia was still sort of a going enterprise, uh, but everyone who's anyone had iPhones or, or maybe Androids. And I was talking to a guy who worked in the Finnish embassy, and he was like, pulling out his phone. I was like, oh, that's so funny. And he was like, so sad. He was sad <laughs> in his face. And, and I asked him why. And he said, I work for the Finnish state, so I have to use the Nokia. And I was like, well, you mean that's like embassy policy or something? And he was like, no, I just, I have to. It's because- like you, couldn't jo- you couldn't drive an import in Detroit or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. exactly. Well, you certainly couldn't be like the chief of staff of the governor of Michigan, (laughs) right, and be driving a Japanese car. It would just be unthinkable. It it wouldn't be done. And it's because that's exactly what you see, right? And so Ben & Jerry's is a big deal in Vermont because that's the closest thing to, like, a big company that's headquartered there. But whatever it is— Sanders loves him, by the way. He's a very—no joke, like, he's a very close relationship with Ben & Jerry's. He's talked about how they're the greatest ice cream in the country. Pretty good ice cream. It's not the greatest. It's, like, pretty decent, though. Right. But, but, I mean, but I think that shows the point, right? Exactly. (laughs) Bernie Sanders has to say, contrary to reality— that Ben and Jerry's is the greatest ice cream in the world. And that's because he's a senator from Vermont. And as silly as it sounds, this Vermont ice cream company has incredible political clout in Vermont. But it's just not true that this kind of big business political clout stops countries that want to build large and effective welfare states from doing that. I'm going to break in here just as a fact-checking situation kind of thing. Ben & Jerry's is now owned by Unilever. So I just want everybody to know, this is AJ. He is our AC. producer. AC. 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 Shit. AC. Don't keep that part of it. AC <laughs> is pointing out that Ben & Jerry's isn't even a Vermont company anymore. It's a subsidiary. Of, an, of Unilever. Of Unilever. An Anglo-Dutch packaged goods conglomerate. But Bernie still loves them because, I don't know, they support his campaign. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is... Big corporations, especially corporations that are big relative to governments, are 100% compatible with the kind of social vision that Bernie Sanders wants to espouse. And he should think harder about this question. And in some ways, right, they're actually an easier, it's an easier transition. The kind of mandates you want for things like single payer, they're much harder on small businesses just because they have less staff in order to be just sort of working through those sorts of 
government channels and employer mandates and so forth. Or ask a union organizer, would they rather try to organize a supermarket or like a cute butcher and a little dairy guy? (laughs) Canada has a much more concentrated banking system than we do. And that was one, like, it was an easier thing to regulate. It was less complex. It was... Yeah, I mean, I think Matt's point speaks to something we talked about on the podcast last week where we were talking about single payer and like, could single payer happen in America? And Ezra's bringing up the argument from famed healthcare economist slash rock star Uwe Reinhardt at Princeton that America is like too corrupt. Like America is like different. But, you know, to Matt's point, there are big interests in smaller countries. It's easier for a big interest to be a big interest in a small pond in a way. I think this gets at like, you know, some of the things we like like to think are distinct in a bad way about the US might not always be actually when you look at the numbers distinctly bad. Well, I don't even know if they're I, I actually don't know if they're if they're good or bad in that way. I do think Matt's point is really interesting that there is a sort of conflict within Sanders's ideology, within his idea of, of the kind of models that he looks towards, which, you know, I think I have actually a lot of tendencies towards bigness within them. I mean, mm-hmm. the sort of relationship between unions and companies that exist in, in European countries, it just works much better with big companies. Like they can be on the boards. And I mean, it, it helps with that kind of cooperative relationship, whereas a really sort of churning economy of small insurgent companies is going to be much more anti-union because they have a lot less like value to extract, a lot less capacity to to be absorbing the sort of the extra processes there. But I, I do want to sort of push a little bit of his, of his point here because I do think it's interesting. Sanders does believe he is very skeptical of big business efficiency in a way that fundamentally Clinton is not. He's very skeptical of advice from big business that it comes from a legitimate place. Sanders, I think, is not is just not as impressed with the profit motive as Clinton is, and something that. I don't feel that I know the answer to is where the party comes down on that right now. But I mean, this is a real consistent difference within their policies. Clinton wants to regulate big businesses, primarily big, not only though, in order to sort of achieve the goals the government wants. So universal health care or whatever. Sanders wants to often take the goal away from the business and provide it through the government explicitly or take it away from big businesses, as in his proposal to break up the biggest banks and basically split that business among smaller entities. And it's a it's a really consistent uh, thing. So, I mean, Sanders may not he may not be as actually on board for the the Scandinavian experience as he thinks, but but it is a internally coherent ideology, actually. His skepticism, it might be something different than the Scandinavian one. But that doesn't mean it. I, I am a little skeptical of it in some ways, but it doesn't mean it's wrong. Well, I think that you, you're making a good point. And I think that this is the side of Sandersism that I would like to hear more about and that I think it has more merit to it than the sort of skepticism of big business per se, but is the optimism that he has about the ability to build high quality public services. I think that you see, uh, particularly with Bill Clinton, but that sort of Clintonite turn, this kind of defeatism arise inside the Democratic Party about the prospects of creating public agencies. And you would say, right, if it didn't exist, you know, obviously we can't have some like big government scheme to construct enormous boats that people are going to fly airplanes (laughs) off to, right? It's far too complicated. And what we're going to need to do is create vouchers where each of the military combatant commands is allowed to purchase aircraft carrier services from a provider of their choice. And then we're going to have a regulatory board to ensure that it goes. Can you imagine creating libraries in this ideological context? (laughs) Exactly, right. It It sounds like 
psychotic. <laughs> exactly. What? We're going to have a, just a building owned by the government full of books owned by the in government? In every city? Right. All across America. Can't be done. <laughs> nope. Shut it down. And and I think that one of the things that we have seen emerge in the Obama years and also in the, in the W. Bush years is that it's true that it's really difficult to build good, effective public agencies. It's true that a lot of government-provided services are kind of crappy and they don't go out of business due to lack of competition. But that once you acknowledge that, well, we're going to have to have regulators looking over companies' shoulders to make sure the incentives align, you've already built that whole problem sort of into the cake. And so it's been very challenging to create a regulatory environment for, for example, for-profit colleges that makes them work well. It's been difficult to oversee the insurance industry, kind of looking over its shoulder. It's been problematic to sort of run the pharmaceutical industry. And so it's true that it would be really hard to sort of have every college run the way we run local high schools. And it's also true that a lot of our local high schools are like not run very well, and it would improve things to make them better. But you can't evade that problem, I think, in quite the third way, Clintonite way that was once hoped mm-hmm. to say, well, we're going to have private service providers, but with some kind of hazy public direction. It's just hard either way. That was a good point. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that this is a place, this is a place where I would really fault the Obama administration, actually. I think, um, I I think it is clear the rollout of Obamacare was a total fucking disaster. Oh, I, I think, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like what what happened with healthcare.gov was was terrible. And it was if you great talk for to internet them, traffic. Yeah, it was good for that. If you talk to them after that, they really put a lot of weight on the problems in the government procurement process. I mean, you had a bill that was relying very heavily on the IT department of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services within the Department of Health and Human Services. And I don't want to say anything too unkind here to what I'm sure hardworking public servants, but the IT department of CMS was probably not staffed and didn't have the rules and so on to be managing a technical lift of that complexity. And so there was a lot of talk about how procurement works, about where it goes in the government, about what kinds of companies can bid and how can they bid. And there was energy on it. And I would hear continuously from the Obama administration, they were working on this, that they were going to be presenting a really big set of concrete solutions. And they have done some things. They've created the U.S. Digital Service, which I think is a, a really interesting sort of small unit within the government that is trying to upgrade technical skills and give a kind of... Um, backup sort of capacity and you know there's some cool things happening but they really have not even in these kind of waning years taken a real effort at upgrading the quality of sort of government services digital or non this is something that to be fair to clinton they really did try reinventing government under al gore was a a serious effort that you know i think is often remembered a bit as a joke but my my understanding is that at least it had real political capital behind it um, when it when it began. Like the vice president was going on the, the Leno show and or, you know and really sort of selling this idea that you know one thing that that Democrats were going to try to do as a party of government was make government work better. And I don't think that is something that the 
Democratic Party thinks enough about. I think that it is easy to underestimate how much damage healthcare.gov gave to the idea that government could do these big things well, I think correctly. I think it'd be hard for somebody to say today, you know, years afterwards, that those problems have fundamentally been fixed. Healthcare.gov has been fixed, but I don't think the the process that led to it really. Right. I think you saw at the end of the healthcare.gov debacle, like, you know, a rush of people to fix it. I mean, if you want to flip it a little bit, like when they actually had a problem they had to fix, I was surprised given like how shitty it was when they launched that they were actually able to fix it and get people to register for health insurance. So they were able to mobilize people in this like crisis mode. But then healthcare.gov works, it like works fine now. The energy behind this totally dissipates. And you see like this movement that was starting in like late 2013, it would have been. I don't think it exists anymore. And I don't think anyone's like expecting any serious changes to how we contract, which I think is, you know, a shame because you really could improve from this healthcare debacle on how these things work. So I actually have a a slightly more optimistic view of this. I think that there was a lot of initial talk about how they were going to reform the contracting system and that that was abandoned because essentially it's unworkable and they hit upon a better idea, which was that they need to build a U.S. digital service and that ultimately, if the government is going to have the kind of first-rate information technology services it has, they are going to have to find a way to create an agency that has high morale and high prestige associated with it and that people come into and that the problem with the contracting wasn't the details of how it works. It's actually the concept that there was this idea, and I think it was a problem of the reinventing government initiative, that we could solve problems by stripping down the number of career public servants who we employed and instead rely on this sort of spot outsourcing of things. And that turns out to be very problematic because it would be, on the one hand, really easy to have a lax system, give the contract to whoever you want, and that's really open to corruption. Or you could have what they created, which was a lot of compliance rules to avoid avoid corruption. But then you create a game in which instead of the job going to the people who are the best at doing the job, the job goes to the people who are the best at writing the grant proposals. Mm -hmm. And you have huge specialists around it. And I think it was a a really bad system and that we're beginning to see some headway made on the correct solution, which is that like running the CIA is really hard. And the way you do it is you have to hire some spies. I I really I I think that is a really good point about the problem. But I I don't I think that really overestimates what the U.S. digital service can do. I mean, I've talk to those folks a bunch. There's a lot they can do in, in terms of providing expertise, but they're just never going to be big enough. They, and they, they, don't, they don't have the power. I mean, a lot of this stuff is decided through law, right? Where these contracts need to be overseen from, who is implementing them. It isn't something that the executive branch always has discretion over. I, I actually don't think that what you can do is sort of just try to push it over here. The, the USDS is a really good step, but it is just not big enough and I think does not it does not solve some of the core problems. I, I guess I'm just saying that I, I think the solution is going to have to be things like this. That's fair. Doing the hard work of creating small government teams that do a really good job but can't get all the work done and then making those teams a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger that trying to have a sort of rule book approach it, there was this sort of market utopianism about it right that's like oh, okay if we just put it up for all 
auction, obviously that's going to be better because competition, lol, hooray. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a real misunderstanding of what kind of situations market competition is going to produce good results for. There's so many principal agent problems in government contracting. There's so many potential problems with corruption. There's so much complexity in the rule writing system that it's just sort of a a bad idea. And as hard as it is to say, we're just going to have to roll up our sleeves and do a good job, there's like not a real alternative. I want to push to another part of the debate that I think actually relates to, to this discussion, which was I thought one of the other surprising parts. In the weeks preceding the debate, Hillary Clinton released a very detailed financial regulation plan. Yes. And in the debate, she really argued with Sanders, whose plan has been, you know, really to break up the big banks, but he's not released a very detailed regulatory plan downstream from that. And she really argued that her plan, which does not break up the big banks, but is a lot more to regulate the shadow banking sector and so forth, is tougher. And and I thought that was a really an interesting moment, a fight you may not have expected her to pick, but also an actually kind of important one because there are very different theories of regulation being articulated. Do you want to sort of run through that discussion? Yeah. So Clinton's argument, which I think makes it's a little bit to one side of whether we should break up big banks or not. But I think the totally valid point she raises is that if you just take the sort of big, diverse financial institutions, the JP Morgans, the Bank of Americas, the Citigroups, if you just split them up and so instead of five or six giant banks, you have like 20 or 30 pretty big banks that some of them are investment banks, some of them are insurance companies, things like that, that you haven't actually solved the problem. That what we saw in the financial crisis is that a Lehman Brothers or an AIG, which were, they were big companies. I mean, to be clear, they were not little mom and pop operations, but they weren't the most giant banks. And they certainly weren't the kind of diversified institutions that Sanders wants to crack up they can still cause really serious systemic risk problems and that you need a comprehensive regulatory solution. That whether the banks are big or small, whether they're monoline or universal, you need to regulate the risk in the system. And I think that Sanders, he has, there's a great line to say, if the bank is too big to fail, it's too big to exist. And we all applaud. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, But it doesn't actually answer the question of, well, what do you do when it turns out some banks have been hiding risk by buying it derivatives from an insurance company. And so now an insurance company, which isn't a bank, is holding all of the risk in the banking system. And now that insurance company might go bankrupt, so all the banks might fail. Right? That's the kind of problem that the Federal Reserve, that the Treasury Department were wrestling with. And breaking up banks, whether it's a good idea or not, it doesn't address it at all. And Clinton's plan, it's way longer and more boring than that. But that's because it's a long, boring problem. I did think, though, that sort of showed her to one of her real advantages in the debates. I think Sanders Sanders has, for a legislator, a lot of very big ideas that are actually translated into legislation. He's got a carbon tax plan that is actually real legislation. He's got a plan to break up banks. I mean, he really does have big theories about how things should work, this sort of prize system for pharmaceuticals, and he, and he writes it down in a bill form. But he is not nearly as detail-oriented on this sort of like mechanics of, of even, I think, his policies as Clinton is on hers. She is a real sort of like technocrat in that way. Her ideas are often not as sweeping, but she really sort of sort of digs into them. And I think there's an interesting difference in, in the idea there of, to some degree, what the role of the president is, but also what is an appropriate way to regulate these things. I think the, the criticism you could make of Sanders is that 
big ideas fall apart in the details, that these things are good applause lines, but they do not sufficiently account for the complexity of the sectors they're trying to regulate. The criticism I think you can make of Clinton is that these much more tightly focused, much more complex systems are easier to game. They have more points of failure. There is too much regulatory discretion, sort of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that bigger, simpler rules, while they arouse more industry opposition, are are actually a better thing. But I think, you know, when you look at the difference between the two of them. You see, I feel like I understand more of like what a Clinton presidency would look like because we've had like a clear spelling out of like, you know, here's what I would do on drugs. Like here's like, you know, my Cadillac tax repeal. I don't think obviously all of it would happen, but we have like kind of these like roadmaps. With Sanders, I think, you know, to your point, Ezra, we haven't gotten that as much. We've seen like the legislation come out in the Senate. We see like there's like a single payer, like Medicare for all bill in the Senate. But then when you look at the campaign side of it, you don't see those like particular proposals. And I'm kind of curious if we're going to get those going down the line or kind of, you know, if when those big ideas become like actual campaign ideas. I, I'm inclined to give him a bit of a, a pass on this, if only because Clinton just had this much bigger campaign, much bigger policy apparatus for a very long time now. And so, you know, I mean, it, it, it just building out the number of specific policy plans you need to run a campaign, like it's a real staffing job. And, you know, a lot of staff probably weren't joining Sanders until pretty recently. He did not seem like quite as hot a ticket, you know, six months ago as he does today, where six months ago, a lot of I remember a New York Times story where it said that 200 economists were advising Hillary Clinton. Whatever that meant, I think the word advising was being used a bit loosely. It did speak to the size of the Clinton policy network. I think Sanders' surge is pretty recent, even even still. And he's produced some pretty detailed plans. He had a detailed prescription drug mm-hmm. plan. He had a detailed plan. Uh, college costs. On college costs, rather. So I think I think we will continue to see that he is somebody who likes releasing those plans. But I think even when they come out, just his approach is to upend the system based on some big principles. It's not a lot of bullet points in his plan. It's a big idea. Right. Like another place you see this is the difference in education policy, where Sanders is like looking at this, you know, free tuition for right. all. And Hillary pushed has pushed back on that, saying, you know, well, that would essentially mean like Donald Trump's kids get free right. tuition. And why don't we tether it? more to income and she has more of an idea of this like debt-free college right. and this difference between free and debt-free kind of speaks right. to that policy space you're talking about and you see why sanders is a more exciting speaker right, right? because like we're going to tax the banks to give everybody free college right. like sounds really great but you know it comes right that's a pretty like you are wasting a lot of money on the children of rich kids there right well and i think it shows the difference between on the stump right sanders's approach is much better he paints in broad strokes there's a vision some people are going to hear the vision and say no i hate this vision but people who have sort of broadly progressive instincts can see a picture that Bernie Sanders is painting for you. Uh, Whereas Hillary's speeches are kind of weak. It's like a little, mm, it seems like she's maybe trying to not really tell you what she really, really thinks, like lost in the weeds. When you get up on a debate, though, it completely flips. And Hillary has such an array of things she can say and positions that she has and subjects that she's fluent in and different directions she can go, where Sanders has like these talking points. But when he gets in the mix, Clinton can actually confuse him by saying, oh, no, my plan's tougher and talk about a specific plank of the plan that is tough. And Sanders, you know, he doesn't. Like the Sanders response, like at least on like, the education one, is like, well, that's too complicated. Like. Free college for all, but like there's right. not as much of like a pushback on the like 
mechanic sort of exactly and and in the debate dialogue where people interrupt each other where they go back and forth things like that clinton's approach i think looks really compelling she seems confident and calm like she knows what she's talking about like she's all kinds of ideas about everything where sanders i mean was literally up there like yelling like a weird old man and it's but the focus group said he won the debate well yeah yeah, maybe he did i don't know i mean just different things are well suited to different materials if you're going to vote for bernie sanders after all so i'm so torn I'm torn about Bernie, and I'm torn about Nordics. No, but I actually I want a whole podcast on this. On I think election decision. I think this is a problem for Sanders, though, which is that when you look at the kinds of places that he admires, right? You don't create something as effective as the Finnish public school system or the Copenhagen Metro by just kind of writing down. Let's have great public schools. And you don't even do it by saying, let's have great public schools and let's spend a billion dollars on it. You have to actually do it, right? It's it's hard to do things and it requires some notion of like, what are you going to do in specific details to make them go piece by piece? Otherwise, it doesn't work. You're just like saying, oh, okay, here's a huge budget, go do something. And in a way, it, it relates to the Obamacare, the healthcare.gov problems we were talking, right? It's like, it's easy for the president and like the HHS secretary to say, well, we need this website. I'm like, write down what it's supposed to do and then forget about it. It's a different thing to build the website. Um, well, this like circles back to actually to the menu regulations, because what this is actually why it's my favorite regulatory fight. Like everyone like Criticize ACA. It's too long. It's two thousand pages. I thought you said medical loss ratio was your favorite. Okay, okay, fine, fine, whatever. But it's a good one. You're catching me, my, you're catching me in my lies. <laughs> so, but like everyone talks about, you know, Obamacare is too complicated. They print it out. They put it on their desk. But it's not complicated but it's, enough. But then you look at this like menu regulation. Like, okay, we want to regulate menus. Like, well, which menus are we going to regulate? And that's where you get into this like movie theater thing. You know, do the ice cream parlors get regulated? They did. Movie theaters. They got out in the in the um, first draft. Movie theaters were excluded. The movie Movie theater lobbyists were ecstatic. They had done their job. Final rule, bam. Movie theaters are back in. They're not good at their jobs. But there's actually, like, there's so many. This is, like, just, like, putting numbers on menu boards. But there are, like, so many steps in between, like, idea of, like, we want to make calorie information more available to, like, actual follow through of doing that. I think it might be time for our white paper of the week. Oh, I think it is. Oh, it's such a good white paper it this week. A, it's still been, not a white paper. You've been real excited been, about this thing that isn't really a white paper. It's so good, though. Do we need to call this research of the week? Paper. Well, paper, paper of, of the, the week. week. Yes. Well, well, we'll, we'll work on the ideas of name. If, if you want to email us at weeds at vox.com, any name suggestions for this segment. After you rate us in iTunes. I think, yes, after you rate us in iTunes. I would call it, we used to have um, a tag at Wonk Blog, the blog Azra and I used to work on, like, live every day like it's NBER day. And that's what I kind of feel like we're doing right now. Because NBER is the National Bureau of Economic and Research. That is, and on Mondays, they release new yes. papers. And we are talking today about an NBER paper by, um, I'm going to read the name of the economist so they can have all this glory on the weeds. So it's four economists, Zarek Brock Goldberg, Amitabh Chandra, Benjamin Handel, and Jonathan Kolstad. And they did this super cool healthcare study that I've 
thought was just fascinating, where they looked at a very large company, they don't name the company, that in 2013, they shifted 75,000 people from a no deductible plan to a plan with about a $4,000 deductible. So all of a sudden, people had these shopping decisions they were responsible before. Before, they could just go to the doctor, their coverage kicked in right away. Now, they would have to pay out of pocket. This company, apparently a very benevolent, unnamed company, also put an amount equivalent to the deductible in a health savings account. So they said, look, you have this deductible, but we're also giving you this money to pay the deductible in this tax-advantaged health savings account. Right. So you now have a $4,000 deductible, but you also have $4,000. Yes. Roughly. It's not quite so 4000 but... You might think, you know, people just went about their normal business. They said, oh, you know, I have this deductible. I have this money. I'll just use the money and go to the doctor when I want to. Surprise twist. Not true. So what you start seeing, which is just I was quite surprised at, is that there's a theory that when you have higher deductibles, people become better shoppers. They, you know, think maybe I don't want to spend $600 on an MRI. Maybe I could go to the $400 MRI. I'll have 200 more dollars in my HSA account that maybe I can roll over to the next year. They work similar to 401ks where you can hold on to the money the year afterwards. And what they saw was that spending definitely dropped. Spending dropped about $1,000 per person just in one year, which is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, you're going from like 5000 to $4,000 per person. But people just stopped going to the doctor as much. They just didn't use as many medical services. And they didn't shop for cheaper prices. They didn't try and find the cheaper MRI. They just said, eh, this seems a little complicated. I don't really want to spend my HSA. And they just didn't shop for care. And it kind of throws cold water in this notion that health economists like to talk about that when you put more skin in the game, when people have to, you know, think about prices, they'll, you know, go onto some price shopping tool, they'll find the better prices. And it suggests we don't like to do that. And there's a variety of theories on why we don't like to do that, but that Americans are not exactly excited or planning on shopping for healthcare. Right. And I think one of the things about the study that's really interesting was that the medical usage of sick people dropped disproportionately. And you you wouldn't expect that because they're going to blow through their deductible anyway. But either because they were scared of doing it or they're worried about, you know, having liquidity later in the year, whatever it was, they really went down. And that's actually dangerous because there wasn't a health tracking in the study. We don't know if sick people were sicker under under these plans, but it is definitely possible for people to skimp on needed care from a, a big past study, the Rand Health Insurance study. We know that people don't really have a good idea of how to distinguish between necessary and unnecessary care. And we know care. this in this study, too. So one right. of the interesting things they showed is that just all types of care fell. Like you even saw a decline in uh, mental health services, which you right. wouldn't think is something that has like much elasticity. And what I talked to Jonathan Kolstad, one of the researchers, and kind of their theory, even these like sick people who, you know, if you look at their health condition as an outsider, you say, of course, they're going to blow through their deductible. Why not get their care? There's something about spot prices, about the thing you pay at the moment you're paying it that really seems to be more of a deterrent than we're thinking about and that it's possible. You know, we don't know the psychology inside, you know, these sicker people who are going to blow through their deductibles, but maybe they're optimistic. Maybe they're thinking this year I'm going to be healthier. I'll roll over some of my HSA. If I just like really cut back on my care, I'll be able to do it. But those like spot prices, they really change how people interact with the healthcare system. I just think it's a little funny that people found this surprising at all because the big 
problem. Kenneth Arrow, I think, wrote the wrote the white paper of the century in the in the <laughs> 20th century back in the 50s about healthcare, and and he says like there's two big problems with the free market in health insurance, and one of them is the stuff about adverse selection that Obamacare is supposed to deal with, but the other, and I think even more profound one, is that there's information asymmetry, right? That the doctor knows what a sick person needs. A sick person doesn't know anything. That's why you're going to and see- And he's terrified. Right. That's why you're going to see the doctor. And in general, you have no way of knowing who is a good doctor or who's a bad one. And if you think about it on baseline level, if you said to me, hey, Matt, uh, do you want to send your son to the discount pediatrician or to the really expensive pediatrician? I think I would say the expensive pediatrician, right? You're not like, oh, I got a great deal on my son's health care because like, maybe you got a terrible deal, right? Because ultimately, the price of the health care service is important, right? I mean, you care. Did I pay $100 or did I pay $200? But you care so much more about the quality, right? But did you this fix is the like problem one or of the things that's maddening about the health care system is there's just no link between quality quality and price. And I get, you know, right. I mean, I know, you know, I know that. this probably. But of course, we think, you know, more expensive cars are nicer than shitty cars, like a first class ticket is nicer than a coach ticket. Why wouldn't a better doctor be well, you know, more you, expensive? You outsource you because with a lot of these things, right? I mean, with, with the first class versus coach, it's actually an observable difference, right? But if you think about something like you go to shop for a car, if you don't know anything about cars, you know that other people know something about cars. And so probably if the Lexus is more expensive than the Toyota, that's because the people who have researched car quality have made some determination that's worth paying extra for. So I think with healthcare, you have a lot of people who don't know what they're doing. They know they don't know what they're doing. And they have maybe a vague assumption that somebody else does. <laughs> right. And so they're not going to go try to redo the research themselves. But it, it's a very confused situation. But one thing I think this kind of theory of healthcare shoppers gets really wrong uh, the, the purchasing we really care about, right? Because everything in healthcare really comes down to what do sick people buy? Sick people, 5% are about 50% of costs. You know, the, the sickest, uh, 20% are roughly 80% of costs. I mean, it's, it's really bad. Those purchases are not like when you go to the supermarket and you decide I'm going to buy some bread and I'm also going to buy some ice cream and I'm also going to buy, you know, some fruit. They're cascading. You go to the doctor and that first purchase, maybe you did search for your doctor. Maybe you asked around. Maybe you did look at pricing. I mean, maybe you did like work really hard to choose a doctor. But once you go to that doctor and that doctor says, you need a test, you need an MRI, and now all of a sudden you're afraid and you're technically outmatched. You don't know who does good MRIs and who doesn't. In the study, it talks about how this corporation gave its employees like a lot of comparison shopping tools. But once you're going into where you need secondary and further on down the line downstream care, things have really accelerated beyond the ability of most of us to easily keep up and do easy comparison shopping. So you say to the doctor, well, who do you think should do my MRI? Who do you think should do this knee replacement? Who do you think? Who do you think? Who do you think? And it's one reason in terms of care decisions that I'm a lot more optimistic about interventions that change the decision making of doctors and hospitals and nurses and other players with both the information and the credibility to make decisions than about consumers. I think the argument for high deductibles, the argument for high levels of cost sharing is primarily that you think Americans use too much health care. 
And if you think that we could just cut like 20% of it off the top with no real adverse impact on our health, then this is a really good idea. It really does work to do that. But if what you're trying to say is that what people should do is just use better health care, then I think you really want to be looking at things like medical bundling and, you know, other kinds of changes to the way sort of doctors are reimbursed. So they who have both the information on what the patient needs and what the sort of probabilities different things will help the patient are, and also the credibility with the patient to make the decision. So they made different calls. And it may be, I think there's totally a, a good argument that we just consume too much healthcare, that we overestimate the effect of healthcare and that we should just do less. And if so, great, high deductibles all the way. But if what you want is just healthier people, I don't think it makes any sense at all. I mean, I think we definitely, there's evidence we use a lot of inefficient care. The hard part is we don't know which of the care is inefficient. Right. And like we as consumers are like not great at figuring that out. One thing I would argue, which is probably like not a politically popular argument, like I think there's more of a role for insurance companies to be a bit of like more of a gatekeeper. And I think this kind of speaks to like the interventions you were talking about, like healthcare nerds will know about accountable care organizations where you have this group of doctors who band together, they accept like a flat fee. And if they can deliver the same quality with lower costs, they get to keep some of those savings. One thing I actually loved that happened with my insurance company, I was like such a healthcare nerd. And I was like, oh, this is so exciting. I have this like nagging foot injury that won't go away. So we did x-rays. It's still there. And I had to get an MRI. And my orthopedic doctor refers me to GW, which charges like some exorbitant amount because they're an academic center. I had no idea about this. Just, I, you know, I scheduled my appointment. Our insurer called me up and was like, would you mind going to this other place that charges a third of the cost? Because I'm a healthcare nerd. I was like, oh, that's like, oh, I'm so proud of you guys for doing that. Like, <laughs> it's a commodity. Like, yes, I will save you this money. But as a shopper, I had like no incentive to go to this place right. I'd never heard of instead of going to this university that's very well known. And I think it kind of speaks to some of these like incentives. There's well, a lot of incentives. Why, why didn't the insurance company like offer you a kickback or something? Because it's not part of our benefit policy. Hmm. They can't just like, send me $200 or, I mean, maybe but, they could, I don't know. But so before we were on our current insurance, which shall remain nameless, yes. I was on Kaiser Permanente, which I really, really yeah. liked. And me and too. what's unusual about Kaiser Permanente for people who, who aren't familiar with it is it it's an insurance company that also employs doctors, also owns its own hospitals. It's an integrated provider. Basically so, like mini single payer. It's mini single payer. So their incentives are really aligned. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, your insurer does have an interest in not just getting you to use cheaper care, but also keeping you healthy because if you get really sick, it's going to be on them. You know, your doctors who in another context, have every incentive to over-prescribe to you because you'll be happier if you feel they're doing everything they can to keep you healthy and whatever. It's all more money for them. They, you know, they're paid salaries at Kaiser Permanente. They're trying to keep sort of overall costs down while still keeping you healthy. But also something I really appreciated about Kaiser Permanente was it, it helped take this kind of weird feeling out of it. Something that, that I think Bernie Sanders, for one, really does a good job hitting on when he talks about single payer is, and, and Matt, you talked about this in a previous podcast, it's a really bad feeling as someone who's afraid you're sick, that the people who are necessary to keep you healthy may not really be on your side, that your insurer may not really want to greenlight your treatments because it's expensive, that your doctor may have a reason to over-treat you because it, it, it puts money in their pocket, that the hospital's reason to over-treat you. One thing about Kaiser, but also about single-payer systems, is just a feeling that everybody is a little bit more aligned. 
And I just think that is, you know, you you give that story about your doctor calling you and saying, hey, we found a place that's cheaper. And as you said, like as a health wonk, you liked it. But like if you weren't a health wonk, you know, if it, and, it, and forget if it was you, maybe it's your kid. And your medical provider is calling up and being like, well, hey, that really important test, we found somebody who, who does it for a bargain. You may not be super pleased right. by that And call. it required, you know, hassle on my end. I had to change the appointment. I had to wait another right. week. But I was like, you know what? Good work, guys. Like, I'll do this because, like, I'm a healthcare nerd. But I don't think I had absolutely no incentive to go to no-name radiology and do it there other well, than the goodness of my own And there's also the question surgery. of choice, right? I mean, yeah. there's this sort of fantasy of the shopping around. And then there's the cost containment reality that, that Ezra outlined, you know, of a Kaiser model or of a an NHS UK style model. And with Kaiser, when I was on their insurance, there was a lot to like about it, but there was also a real hassle factor that I wanted to get my uh, eyes checked, get an updated glasses prescription. And with Kaiser, I couldn't just go to the convenient optician at the eyeglasses store. I had to schlep over to the Kaiser facility because that's part of their integrated model. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that happened there was that there's a certain amount of waiting around with basically everything in life. And while I was waiting around there, they strapped one of those things on my arm and checked my blood pressure. (laughs) But that's smart, right? So if you are a 20-something man who doesn't have any chronic health conditions, you really don't need to see a doctor regularly. You don't need that much in the way of healthcare. But blood pressure monitoring is a really valuable thing to do. So what Kaiser does is they take sort of any excuse, like you're in the building, they're slapping those cuffs (laughs) on you. And it's really smart. Like, they're really smart people. It's a smart company. But the fact of the matter is, I could have gotten my eyes checked down the block, and instead I had to go over to, like, three blocks from Union Station, and it was annoying. And one thing people like about conventional sort of insurance options is the ability to go do what you want, go to the doctor who's most convenient to you, go to people who you have a good rapport with, to follow your Aunt Sally's recommendations, things like that. The problem is that we're not actually savvy healthcare consumers. So all that consumer choice doesn't have a health benefit, but it does have a, I don't know, like a life and feeling good about your <laughs> afternoon benefit. Yeah. The flip side of your, your Kaiser experience is, uh, so I don't have a regular general practitioner right now. So I went on ZocDoc, which is this kind of iPhone app that lets you sort of slot into doctors around around you in a sort of convenient time. And, you know, they have reviews, so you can look if they're well-reviewed, and I found the one that was well-reviewed. And I went to him, and, uh, you know, what I needed was particular medication, which I knew what it was, and I needed, um, I want to get blood work done. And he really treated me, you know, possibly trying to be respectful of my time, like a consumer. Like, I told him what I wanted, and he gave me exactly that with basically no examination whatsoever. He didn't even take my blood pressure. And I was furious at this because, like, I actually, you know, I know enough about about healthcare policy to know that, like, you're really always supposed to do the blood pressure. And so, I mean, this was it felt to me like the opposite, that I really was being treated like a consumer and like when I wanted to be treated like a patient, like I wanted to be treated, you know, I wanted to begin developing a relationship with a doctor and someone I could go back to. But his incentives, he was just it seemed to be burning through ZocDoc referrals. And so, like, he had a very busy schedule. It took me a long time when I was there to, to get to the appointment and he was sort of overbooked. Again, it just like goes to the incentives, not just doctors, but also the the patients. And something I think that we often have trouble with is, well, how would you measure quality even if you tried? Because one of the things that is really difficult is what does a good patient experience mean? A good patient experience may mean that you did not get testing that you find unpleasant, 
right? It may mean that your doctor did not give you a shot because, you know, you don't enjoy shots or he didn't scold you about your smoking or she didn't tell you to lose weight or whatever it might be. There are a lot of things doctors do that are not super fun, but are actually like part of being a good doctor. And one thing that's really hard to figure out is when you ask somebody, did they have a good experience? And they say, yes, are you getting a readout on that doctor having provided appropriate care to them? Are you getting a readout on that doctor having a good bedside manner? Are you getting a readout on that doctor actually catering to the patient above sort of what would be good medicine? And to some degree, some of the same problems reoccur even when you're really looking at what kind of testing the doctor does, because there's just a lot you don't know about what a doctor sort of should have been looking for or asking about that wouldn't just show up on the chart. So I mean, it's just, it's very hard to to develop really good distinct measures of quality but the way a lot of uh, a lot of organizations particularly sort of in the app era are trying to do it where people just go and rate doctors or rate their medical experience like it was Amazon and they bought a television it's actually I don't want to say it's bad, but it is probably measuring something that is potentially related to, but definitely not identical to quality. Yeah, I think that's this. I think there's like decent cost compare tools out there if your insurer decides to buy one. Like, for something like standard, like an MRI, you know, I would feel comfortable just choosing the cheapest option. I think some people would still actually use that tool in the reverse of what you want and be like, oh, the most expensive MRI, I will go to that one. But when it comes to, you know, like, primary care physicians, surgeons, that like quality piece isn't quite there yet. Um, there's some really interesting work going on right now where Yelp and ProPublica, which is a great investigative journalism outlet, are doing work to add um, ratings onto doctors and hospitals' Yelp sites. And that's been pretty controversial. There's been like a debate in the healthcare wonkery world about like whether this is good or bad for patients and doctors. But I think that quality space it's a growing controversy. We're starting to try and rely on quality metrics more. And one of the things that actually is heartening is if you look at the literature, patient satisfaction and actual quality do actually seem to align like pretty nicely. Ashish Jha at Harvard has done some great work on that. But the quality metrics, like they're easy to game, like they're easy to like manipulate. And that's like an area where I'd say Medicare is like struggling a little bit right now. They're trying to reward doctors for quality. But this like definition of quality thing is definitely not sorted out. Well, and it's because capitalism, you know, doesn't work. And... <laughs> no, I mean, I think it, it's because capitalism is lovely. And what capitalism does is it's, a, it's an engine for producing consumer satisfaction, right? And if you look at a really successful capitalist company, right, like Apple, Tim Cook tells you, you know, he doesn't just look at, at profit and loss in this quarter because he, he wants to build a business for the long term. So he looks at his consumer satisfaction surveys, right? People should be happy with their transactions with Apple. And that's great for them because they're making smartphones. And really, like, the job of the smartphone is to make you feel good about having spent whatever $100 on the smartphone. But it's just not true that that's the job of a doctor, right? The job of a doctor is sometimes to deliver some hard truths to you, to deliver some real talk and to say, you know what? You got to stop eating the food that has all the calories in it, right? You've got to exercise more. Like, I can't help you. I could give you a prescription drug for that, but like really what you need to do is change your lifestyle. You don't need an antibiotic. You have a virus. <laughs> right, yeah. It's it, a very big one. It <laughs> won't It won't help. I could do a pointless test on your back, but the reality is is that the current state of medical science is that we don't know what causes low back pain, right? <laughs> That's responsible medical treatment, but it would be 
really much more satisfying to see a doctor with your low back pain and have him tell you, oh, he's got like a great cure. He's going to put you on this treatment program. And because placebos work, it would even be sort of effective, right, to give you this whole sort of fake treatment. But as a society, we don't want, it's not socially effective to have medicine be practiced the way like used car dealers operate. But that's that's capitalism. Well, and I think that speaks to like why, so you both talked about how great Kaiser is, how much you like you loved being at Kaiser. One of the things that when you look at Kaiser, they haven't really like taken over the healthcare world. They like, did in California. They did in California, but they have, and then they came out to yeah. DC. They have like a little bit of an East Coast presence. I've had a conversation with health economists about, you know, why is that? If they're delivering like high customer satisfaction, yeah. relatively low cost, is it actually like, you know, a lot of people don't like it because they want their low back pain tests? Or is it just like an organizational thing? Is it because meet- they can't sign providers up? Well, they could, you know, they came into D.C., so presumably they know how to, like, go into markets and build new facilities. Seems like something we should look into at, at greater length. Right. We could do, we could do like, the journalism. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I guess we'll just leave it at that and write some news articles. I would say that, that, like Tim Cook, I pay a lot of attention to our customer service reviews on, on iTunes and also to the self-criticism session at the end of our podcast. I really care about what we think we got wrong. Oh, yeah. Here we are again every week. Every week. Every week we do this. (laughs) All right. I've got one from today. It's not really – this isn't really a a criticism. It is more an anxiety that I've begun to be beset by during our podcasting. We are self-consciously running this kind of like wonky evidence-driven podcast and we're like bringing up a lot of studies. And when I do that kind of writing and I like remember I read a study, what I do is I go look up that study (laughs) and like make sure I remember it right. Right. But like now you have me – I'm sitting here being like, my God, like did I – did I read a study showing that there can be a positive caloric effect of menu labeling? Or do I did I read an argument or have I misremembered it? It's like kind of anxiety producing to be like trying to remember research you read five years ago on the fly. Yes, I think that's So I hope people will be gentle with us if we Right. We will try not to I think we have things. the forum at least on our website at Vox.com too. If if there's anything we got wrong, ideally we can address yeah, it in the show notes. Yeah, we can bring it up in the but show notes. But out in the iTunes world we'll just be Oh, something harassed. somebody asked on our, our email, Vox was for some way to find the show notes more easily. So we will create a, a group on Vox.com. It'll be Vox.com slash the weeds. Yes. And yes. you'll be able to find sort of every sort of podcast post with show notes there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you know, try to keep us honest. As Ezra said, we're talking about a lot of complicated stuff without proper research materials ahead of us. Uh, <laughs> we have an email address, weedsatvox.com, that you can uh, reach us at with uh, comments. We've also been looking at suggestions for future topics. We have a, a little document where we're thinking about things. Uh, a lot of those are suggestions that came from readers. We really appreciate that stuff. Keep writing. Yeah. Do you guys have any criticisms or I'm the only? So I don't know. If it's not a criticism. It's an observation. More I'm of a curi- comment than a question. More of a comment. Yes. <laughs> it's a three-part <laughs> comment. So we'll have another half hour for this segment. Well, we ran a little bit longer this time. And I'm curious how readers feel about our timing. Readers, listeners. Oops. Um, nobody's it's more reading. of an audience. It's more of an audience. More of a cult, one might say. The weeds. So I'm curious to know how people think about the show length. Can, and I, can I be honest? Yeah. I'm not. Oh, well, there we go. I'm curious to know what my wife will think about me being late to get home and help I'm take I'm curious care of the baby. if my mom made it this far in the podcast. Not me. Do you guys I... want the uh, the easy producer answer from somebody who works on podcasts? I d- no. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have a weird, because of the podcast I like, 
I have a weird sort of affection for like long podcasts, but also like podcasts that like can let the thing breathe. Like I feel like in our job as like content providers and editors at Vox.com, we spend so much time like thinking about like what is like the optimal packaging to send something ricocheting like forever across the internet. And I really just like like the idea that like we can just have a conversation that like I'm sort of doing this because I think it's fun. And so I don't I don't want to honestly like I am sure that like probably a lot of people do prefer shorter podcasts, but I just kind of don't care. All right. Well, there we are. <laughs> we want to thank our show producer, AC Valdez. Thank you. And this is The Weeds from Vox.com and Panoply Network. And you can find Matt, Sarah, and I at Vox.com. And we will be back with another podcast next week.